0: In our last episode of the Problem of Evil series, we saw how process theologians and philosophers like Alfred North Whitehead attempted to devise a metaphysical system that could make sense of a God who suffers with his suffering creation. In doing so, process theism rejected some, if not most, of the classical conceptions of God as immutable, impassable omniscient and omnipotent. Most Catholic and Protestant theologians alike felt that the process view had too many fatal flaws and that too much of what made God God at all was lost in their new metaphysics. But for some, the critique that process thinkers had of this classical conception of God had some merit to it. In particular, a group of Protestant evangelical theologians questioned whether the classical understanding of things like God's impassibility, omniscience, and his divine timelessness were more a product of Greek philosophy than of the biblical revelation. In these evangelical circles, debates about God's providence and foreknowledge were most commonly pitted as a Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. But some of these new thinkers found that debate to be insufficient, because for these scholars, it seemed as if, no matter what side of the debate you chose, possibility didn't seem truly possible. And if possibility isn't truly possible, then there is no free will. Such a determinism would mean that every instance of suffering was ultimately unavoidable and would have to be part of God's will and plan. Does God's complete foreordaining or perfect foreknowledge make the biblical narrative unintelligible, with God acting as some sort of arsonist firefighter? In the 1990s, a new school of theologians and philosophers known as open theists would challenge both classical theism and process theism an attempt to find another ontological framework that they felt could make the most sense of the biblical narrative and best remedy the problem of evil did they succeed or did they inevitably bump into some of the same theodicy challenges that perplexed both classical and processed theologians before them welcome to deep talks exploring theology and meaning making I'm Paul Anleitner. We're approaching the end, very close to the end of our very long <laughs> Problem of Evil series. As always, I recommend that you actually start from the beginning of this series and you work your way through. I think you'll see the most connections that way, but also we'll do a few other things. It will um, help you if you go from start to finish on this and you, you listen to every episode, even even the perspectives of theologians or schools of thought that you think you already disagree with, I think that is actually beneficial to you. It will do one, a couple of things. One, I think it will actually hopefully soften some of your edges that you might have an animosity you may have to a particular school of thought, whether you, let's say, are a Calvinist and you're listening to today's episode on open theism and you just think, man, that's a, a damnable heresy. Hopefully, as you get done with today's episode, your edges towards that will have softened and you will see how another reasonable person could come to that conclusion and may find it to be the best way to address the problems of evil and suffering, and vice versa. If you come in today, you know, you're an open theist or a processed theist, you need to go back and listen to those episodes on Martin Luther and Calvin and to to listen to a, a natural theologian like Gottfried Leibniz and... so. Best way, again, go from start to finish, work your way through. It'll soften your edges towards other positions that you might have some animosity towards. But it may also do another thing, and this is the goal. The goal is to just help you see a perspective that maybe you've never seen before. And maybe in some way, it's it's an exposure to an idea that helps you better make sense Of your own experiences of evil and suffering and what you see in the world help you make sense of the biblical narrative to help you address perhaps even deep deep questions concerns even traumas you've experienced in your life that have caused you to doubt that have caused you to go through existential dread and to wrestle with your faith. Um, So this series is intended to help you do all of those things. I think it's best consumed if you go from start to finish. Well, today's episode is made possible by the listeners who support this podcast on Patreon. This is an ad-free episode because of their generous contributions. Thank you all for your support. If you wanna get involved, you can find out more at the end of this episode. In 1980, there was this theologian named Richard Rice, and he was a professor at a Seventh-day Adventist university in California. He wrote a book entitled The Openness of God, The Relationship Between Divine Foreknowledge and Human Free Will. And it was a pretty controversial book. This book is historically what theologians would point to as the first book to contain the phrase open theism. While that book was written in 1980, it wouldn't really be until the mid 90s where open theism would enter into the mainstream of academic theology and eventually take the larger evangelical church world by storm. And that would be a storm of controversy. This storm of controversy was brought about because of a 1994 book a book co-authored by Rice, along with Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, William Hasker, and David Bassinger, and this book was entitled The Openness of God, a biblical challenge to the traditional understanding of God. This was the book that made open theism mainstream in the world of academic theology, and then eventually, as we get a little bit later into the 90s, into the evangelical church world. Mainstream, and I say mainstream in that it entered into the mainstream of conversation. It was not initially received in the world of evangelical theology positively. It was quite controversial. Some of the initial charges from people were that this was uh, just another version of process theism. And for those that saw process theism and process philosophy as a heretical viewpoint, Open theism's association with that early on was uh, not something that would earn them marks of approval. Despite the many rebuttals from evangelicals who claimed it was another version of process theism, open theists like Clark Pinnock clearly expressed disdain for process theism. For Pinnock, the problem was that process theism, like so much of classical theism, had actually forced the biblical revelation into a metaphysical system instead of adapting a metaphysical system to work within the biblical revelation. So in many ways, Pinnock Pinnock and others felt like they were being more faithful to the scriptures. Here's here's someone in Pinnock that thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to take my reading of the scriptures and I, I see that as the supreme Source of God's revelation to humanity. And I'm going to try to adapt and create a metaphysical system that I think best fits my reading or understanding of the biblical revelation. Very interesting that that was his thrust and motivation when so many people very early on felt like this was um, a a movement that was against the scriptures, that it was a philosophical system being imposed onto the scriptures, when in fact, Pinnock's intention was the opposite. He wanted to create a metaphysical system that was adapted to what he perceived to be as the biblical revelation. So, if we were in theory to try and do something like that kind of endeavor, we're going to try and derive a metaphysics, an ontology that could make the most sense of the biblical revelation. What would be essential to affirm? What would be the the core ingredients of this biblical revelation, of this biblical meta-narrative, that we say these are essential and now we have to work our way around this to create a a suitable and sustainable metaphysics and ontology that fit the biblical meta-narrative. Though there were a variety, and there still are, a variety of nuanced differences among open theists, just as there are with classical and process theism, and though open theism is actually branched out from its origins in primarily evangelical Christianity to now even include Catholic or even, you know, you'll even find Jewish and Muslim open theists, these would be some of the essential beliefs of evangelical open theists who were trying to hold to the primacy of the inspired scriptures and find a possible philosophical system that maps on to what they see as essential to the biblical metanarrative. This might not be an exhaustive list. You could get a bunch of different open theists in a room together and say, hey, I might add this and I might add this, but th- this is what I would see are the essential ingredients. What they see is the essential ingredients in the biblical met- metanarrative that they're going to try to adapt a metaphysics around. Here's the first essential thing. First, Human moral responsibility is essential to the biblical narrative. If we can't figure out a way for humans to be morally responsible for their actions in the world, then concepts like the fall, sin, and even repentance and redemption don't make any sense. Second, God is personal and desires genuine, loving, relational community with humanity. If that isn't true, then evangelical open theists say the narrative of Scripture makes little to no sense. Thirdly, and this one is probably more of a stronger emphasis of another godfather of open theism who wasn't involved in that first book I mentioned, the, 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 not the first book by Rice, but the one where Rice offered, um, co-authored with uh, Pinnock and Hasker. Um, in 1994, but another one of the godfathers of open theism, Greg Boyd, who I'll actually have on the podcast here in a few weeks. For him uh, and others in, in Greg's school of thought, the, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the ministry of Jesus who heals the sick, who raises the dead, casts out demons, and even calls Satan the prince of this world, these must really be redemptive and rescuing acts where God does not act as the arsonist who starts the fire and then in Christ puts it out, and then for some reason expects us to see that as a genuine rescue. We need to find a system in which the redemptive, saving, healing acts of Jesus' ministry can truly be that and not be some sort of odd arsonist firefighter routine. With these essential convictions, open theists set out to challenge some of what they perceived as the philosophical constraints in traditional Christian metaphysics and theology. Restraints that they thought undercut the biblical revelation. All right. So first, if human moral responsibility is essential to the integrity of the biblical met- meta narrative, and it seems like it has to be, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if humans are not actually responsible in some way for their choices, Ah, uh, the, the, the whole narrative collapses, right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Why would God give commands? Why would he have expectations on, on human behavior in the world? Uh, what would even repentance mean? It just doesn't make sense, right? It's, human moral responsibility is essential to the integrity of the biblical narrative. And if that's the case for the open theist, then possibility has to truly be possible. When I was teaching in the classroom years ago, uh, and I was doing lessons on uh, open theism and, you know, the debates between, uh, in evangelical circles, Calvinists, Arminians, and open theists, right? I, I usually would refer to this sort of analogy, right? I would do this, maybe not analogy, but a thought experiment with the students in the class, and it always got them all riled up. It was always a fun one. I'd grab a pen and a stapler off of my desk, and I'd walk up to a student in the classroom and, and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I've got in one hand, I've got the stapler, as you can see, and in the other hand, I have a pen. In a moment, I'm going to act, ask you to choose to take the pen or the stapler, all right? But I don't want you to tell me right now. I want you to just give you a moment to think about your choice, okay, between the pen or the stapler. You're not going to get to keep it. You don't necessarily even need to decide what you think is going to be more useful to you right now. I just want you to make a choice. What might most interest you, the pen or the stapler? But before you do that, here's what I want to do. I want to ask everybody in the class right now, does God know what, we'll just say someone's name, Susie, is going to choose, right, in this very moment? Does God know whether or not Susie here is going to choose the pen or the stapler? And most students in the class would say, yeah, 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 right? Uh, Private Christian school, most students in the class would say, hey, yeah, we think God knows whether or not Susie's going to choose the pen or the stapler, all right? So then the question becomes, well, when did God know when did God know that Susie would choose the pen or the stapler? And this is where you're going to get a, start to get a little bit of variety of answers, right? But by and large part, many of the students would say, well, God's always known. So God's always known that Susie would choose a pen or a stapler. So even before Susie was born, God knew this very moment would happen, knew that Susie would be presented with this choice between a pen and a stapler. Long before even the, you know, her parents were born, or long before even the foundations of the earth, from from eternity past, God knew. And many of the students would say something like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," I feel comfortable with that. Some of them would start to see already some challenging questions that emerge with that. And then after they've had some time to think and to talk about that, I asked Susie to reach out and grab one of the two let's say Susie in this case grabs the stapler. She takes the stapler. All right. So the follow-up question to that is if God eternally has foreknown that Susie was going to take the stapler, right? He knew it before, not just even a moment before she was going to do it. And we'll talk about later why that even that's a challenging and problematic issue of, Well, when do we make a decision, (laughs) you know, um, from a neurological and psychological perspective? So not even just the moment before, but before Susie ever walked into the classroom, before Susie ever attended school, before Susie was ever born, before her parents met and fell in love and procreated before her grandparents ever met and fell in love, before her grandparents were even born, before there were even people on this continent, before there were ever people on the planet. You go back and back and all the way back before there was anything at all, God knew that Susie was going to choose this stapler. So if that is the case, could Susie have chosen the pen? And this is the question that provokes the open theist. So the Calvinist and the Arminian alike say, well, God eternally foreknew for the Calvinist is because God had eternally foreordained that Susie would take the stapler. For the Arminian, it's that God perfectly and eternally foreknew what? Foreknew? Is that foreknown? Forenoon? <laughs> What's the grammatical proper grammatical tense for the past tense of foreknow? Golly, now that's getting weird. <laughs> All right. So God eternally and perfectly had foreknowledge. We'll put it like that. That Susie would, in that moment, choose the stapler. The question then is that did Susie ever... Really have the pen as a viable option to choose. Students sit there and they go, "Oh well, yeah, 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 yeah." Because because God, God could have known that Susie could have chosen the pen. Okay, so, but she didn't. She chose the stapler, right? She chose the stapler, and God eternally foreknown or eternally predestined the stapler choice to happen. Right? Which also then means the consequences of that would also mean that, it, before, that God eternally foreknew that Susie would take this class, that she would go to this school, that she would be born, that her parents would meet and fall in love. Did they have any choice in that whatsoever? Was it always that they were going to fall in love? Were they fated to fall in love and to create Susie? And before that, their grandparents. And before that, and you can see from something as simple and stupid as picking between a pen. And a stapler, the challenges that are presented if possibility doesn't seem to be truly possible. If Susie could not have actually chosen the pen because God eternally and perfectly had foreknowledge that, or, you know, again, in a more deterministic setting, if God eternally predestined that Susie would choose the stapler then the pen was never truly a possibility. And if it was never truly a possibility, let's say she, she grabs that stapler, right? She grabs that stapler and accidentally staples her finger, or worse, she takes that stapler as a weapon, right? And, you know, just smashes somebody with it or puts a staple through their ear. Golly, why am I thinking of such horrible... Instances of what could be done with a stapler, right? She goes John Wick with that stapler and she turns it into a deadly weapon. Okay. Was I morally responsible for offering her that choice? Was she morally responsible for choosing the stapler to begin with if it wasn't ever possible for her to choose the pen? You see how this can have immense problems for human moral responsibility. And this is really. Nothing new, you know, this is part of the problem with evil that we have long wrestled with in this series, especially when it comes to providence, foreknowledge, right? The nature, the ontological nature of reality, what is it, what would be the conditions ontologically which would create a set of circumstances where possibility is truly possible? what would be the ontological requirements necessary for Susie to be able to truly be free to have the real viable option of choosing the pen or the stapler? So, for the open theist, this undercuts human moral responsibility, and human moral responsibility seems central to the biblical story, so we're going to have to find a different metaphysics or different ontological structure that could support that. The challenge open theists posed to the more Calvinist wing of evangelicalism was that if it is true, and if this is true, if there is not even as, to quote R.C. Sproul, the Um, Calvinist, pastor, uh, theologian, if there isn't, quote, a single maverick molecule in the universe, end quote, and everything from the innocuous choice of the pen or the stapler analogy or what shirt you wore today or on the more serious side— to whether or not you choose or chose to become a serial killer or a nun with your life, if that's determined and settled by God's divine foreordination, then possibility is not truly possible, and so neither should human responsibility, because responsibility presupposes an ability to respond. But again, it's not just that God's foreordaining is a challenge for the open theist. It is even traditional notions of God's foreknowledge, because again, as in the case of the stapler and the pen choice, if God has eternally foreknown the outcome, even if he did not necessarily eternally decree it, as in more Calvinist schools of thought, you still have to do what God has foreknown you will do. And in that way, the stapler was never truly a possible option for you to choose. So then, if God does not foreknow all events, then is God not omniscient? To this question, the open theist says, no, you've just misunderstood what omniscience is. For certain contingent possibilities to remain unknown, Differing open theists use different metaphysical explanations. So again, there's diversity of thought among open theists as to what would be the best metaphysical structure, ontological structure that would make possibility possible while still affirming something like God knows all there is to know. So for some, some would say, some open theists would say that it is within God's power as God to limit his own knowledge. In the same way, God has maybe in limited degrees of his omnipotence or his omnipresence in the incarnation, right? Uh, Jesus was fully God, fully human, and in his full divinity, he was not in all places and at all times in the incarnated Son of God. Jesus was bound to physical locations as a constraint that God placed on himself in being also fully human. This stuff gets pretty confusing, I admit it, but for some open theists, they say, hey, there's evidence that God can limit himself, all right? So that's one possible school of open theist thought it's to say, hey, you know what? God has limited his own knowledge, right? God has limited his own knowledge. He is omniscient, but he is using with within his unlimited freedom, he can even in a somewhat paradoxical way limit his own knowledge, right? Others would say though that God limiting his own knowledge isn't a paradox, it's just an odd logical contradiction. So, like, did God know all of history at one point and then decide to restrict his knowledge later? How would that even work? Instead of that option, there is a branch of open theists that may prefer to call their view the open view of the future and say that the way God structured reality itself included the intentional inclusion of possibilities. God knows all of the actualities that are settled and also the contingent possibilities that are open to human or even in some cases, angelic moral agents. Those open possibilities don't become actualities to be definitively known until they are chosen. So in the case of let's say, um, what were we calling our hypothetical girl in class's name? Was it Stacy or Susie? Uh, let's say Susie. I think it was Susie, right? The the option that I presented to Susie between the the pen or the stapler, that could be a contingent possibility that God structured in His creation uh, that is ontologically open. It is a possibility. And so, in that sense, God knows it as a possibility, but not as an actuality until Susie makes the choice between the pen and the stapler, grabs the stapler, and then at that point, it becomes an actuality to be known. So, that is one way that open theists, some open theists would say, God knows all things, but All things don't include that uh, God knows that unicorns exist. God doesn't know that unicorns exist because unicorns don't exist. God knows a unicorn doesn't presently exist. Maybe it did at some point. I don't know. But there are no unicorns on earth. We'll just put it like that. To say that God knows that unicorns on earth exist is not a... um, is not something that actually points to a greater degree of God's knowledge. It would be a faulty degree of knowledge because unicorns do not exist. So this is an argument that open theists use to say, hey, it's not about, well, what are, you know, is, does God's omniscience seem limited if the structure of reality contains only some degree of possibilities and not all of it is actualities? Does it feel like God knows less, or does that just mean that God has, an, has completely accurate knowledge of all ontological realities, including God's intentional structuring of reality to contain possibilities? Now, there might be some open theists that say, hey, 99% of reality is predestined. They are actualities that God already knows, and he has only left 1% of reality to be filled with contingent possibilities. Some might go as far as to say, well, it's all contingent possibilities, right? Some might say, well, it could be 50-50%. The point is that among open theists, there is some degree in which the ontological structure of reality contains something called a contingent possibility that isn't known until it becomes an actuality through free choice. Proponents of the open view point to passages of scripture that seem to support the reality of conditional possibilities that have unknowable outcomes even to God. So let's, let's explore a few of these examples together in the scriptures. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is a, a, a few of the common examples. So, for example, you could go to Exodus 4. In Exodus 4, we see God giving Moses commands about how he's supposed to communicate God's plan to free Israel from the Egyptians in bondage. And he, he says this to Moses as it's recorded in Exodus 4, quote, Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs are listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Okay, that's really weird, right? <laughs> God is presenting Moses... Uh conditional possibilities about the future that seem to point to God not knowing how the outcomes of each of those contingent possibilities will definitively play out. He says, hey, if they don't believe the first sign, right, they might believe the second. Wait, God, what do you mean they might believe the second sign? Why are you telling me if, right? Uh, and then verse 9 right? says, if they do not believe these two signs are listened to you, here's what you're supposed to do. Take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and then the river will become blood. What are these if and may statements from God? Okay, so that's one example. Another common example. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 11. If... At any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evils, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then... I will reconsider the good I had intended for, uh, intended to do for it. Hmm. Very interesting, right? So, And the conclusion of God's message through Jeremiah in 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 7 through 11 is, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil, each one of you, and reform your ways and actions. Right? The the hope is that in knowing what lies ahead, there would be the possibility, the genuine possibility that those people living in Judah and those in Jerusalem would actually turn from their evil ways. There's obviously the assumption of moral responsibility, but also here, Theists point to the genuine possibility that the future could turn out differently, and that God might not even have a settled plan in mind as to how that's going to play out. Obviously, if we're going to read the scriptures this way and come to the conclusion that open theists do, this this would mean some serious challenges to classical notions of divine timelessness, uh, challenges that Uh, seem to affirm that there are some form of successive states or experiences in God, which is very, very different than classical notions of divine timelessness, which reject successive states or successive experiences of God. And this would also challenge notions of immutability and impassibility, immutable meaning that uh, there is no change in God, impassibility, meaning that, that God is not affected in any way, shape, or form by his creation. He's not moved. He's not, no, nothing, right? So the open view challenges that. It challenges that by saying, hey, you know what? We see these scriptures, and we think this is what the metaphysics and the, the ontological structure of reality looks like. But in doing so, th- th- they present challenges to these historic conceptions of God, that God is timeless, that God is immutable and passable. And this is where the major controversy stuff hit in the 90s and things got messy. You know, in the 90s, heading into the 2000s, um, I, I don't want to get into all the mess. You know, there, there was quite a bit of messy interactions. Uh, even here in the Twin Cities, uh, among you know a couple of very well-known pastors <laughs> here in the Twin Cities that were also uh, teaching at um, my seminary alma mater. It was it was uh, it was a unique time. I wasn't there at that time, but it was a unique time because you can see how this open view when we have this long classical history, of thinking of God as immutable, impassable, um, uh, being timeless and divine timelessness. And some system comes along and says, hey, we don't think that that's true, or we would put qualifying markers on that. Boy, you, you can understand why there was a lot of controversy. But again, this is where you know, when it comes to divine timelessness, immutability, impassibility, this is where the open theist ardently argues that those notions need to be challenged, and they need to be challenged by the biblical witness. In what way is God the living God of scriptures, and in any way a God who could enter into covenant and personal communion with human agents— if he's beyond any sort of experience of time or sequence how can god be unchangeable immutable when he clearly presents situations in the bible where his plans were changed for example when moses interceded on behalf of of, of israel after israel had turned to idols uh, after being rescued from egypt right and and God's like, I'm just going to wipe them out. And Moses is like, hang on, remember your promise to them, and he intercedes, right? How does that happen? Or how does the situation of God's plans change for the Ninevites? When Jonah went and preached that judgment was coming to Nineveh, with no alternative, mind you, he didn't go to Nineveh after being spit out of the you know, the, 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 the great fish or the whale or whatever it was, he, he didn't go to Nineveh and be like, hey, here's the deal. If you repent, God may relent. There are no, no qualifying statements. It's like, hey, here's what's coming. But the Ninevites go, we're going to repent and we're going to turn it, you know, we're going to put on sackcloth and ashes, and it changes the outcome of that pronouncement of judgment. And instead Nineveh receives mercy. How is he beyond? How is God beyond being affected in any way by his creation when we see the prophets present him as emotionally moved by people's behavior? Now, the, the most common rebuttal, classical rebuttal to these sorts of questions is that, you know, God presenting, you know situations where he's, you know, the the, the biblical witness says things like. You know, God repented that he ever made Saul king. Those are not really revelations about his actual state. Those are anthropomorphisms, right? They're ways in which the biblical author is communicating things as if God had human qualities, right? To to communicate some value or some moral instruction to God's people. But the counter response to that to open theists is even if these are anthropomorphisms, right? Even if they're ways of expressing things that might not accurately depict the actual internal state of God, they still point to something true about God, right? So how is God unable to be affected by his creation when he is presents himself as emotionally moved throughout the prophets? Why does he present these if statements to Moses? If Israel does this, if this doesn't work, how does that happen? Even if it's an anthropomorphism, what is it actually supposed to reveal? This is again where someone like Pinnock would say, Hey, the, the the burden is on us to adapt our philosophy and metaphysics to the biblical revelation and not to try to make the biblical revelation fit are metaphysics. How does open theism attempt to explain and address the categories we've been exploring, the categories of evil that we've been exploring from the very beginning of this episode, categories like human moral evils and natural evils? Well, in open theism, human moral evils are the result of God's choice to create a world where the possibility for good and evil are are possibilities that moral agents can truly actualize. In the case of someone like Clark Pinnock and especially Greg Boyd, this would even include angelic moral agents who also have been given a freedom of the will. So. Moral evils are the result not only of human moral agents choosing between possibilities that have degrees of good and evil and choosing evil, but would also apply to angelic moral agents who have at least seemingly some degree of freedom of the will as well. This, again, for someone like Greg Boyd, who we'll talk to in a couple of weeks. This may explain why there is so much suffering and calamity in the natural world. For someone like Greg Boyd, spiritual agents have a degree of influence in what we might call our material world, though obviously we don't necessarily need to bifurcate the material and the spiritual. Satan and demonic powers can wrongly use the level of authority that they've been granted to bring about things like diseases and natural disasters. Boyd sees evidence of angelic moral agents, spiritual principalities, and powers being behind many instances of what we might call natural evils in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see Jesus. In his healing ministry, uh, and even in his rebuking of the storm, we might be able to see evidence of nefarious powers who are rebelling against God's will. This is all a part of Boyd's warfare worldview that I'll be looking forward to discussing with him. Uh, he wrote two books that are framed within this open view of the future perspective. They're theodicy books. There's the Warfare world view, uh, view book and Satan and the Problem of Evil. I think they are very much worthwhile reads for anybody, uh, especially those of you that have grown up in more reformed traditions or more classical schools of thought, uh, classical schools of theism, let's say, as in you grew up in traditional Catholicism or you were a Lutheran or, you know... It's really helpful to be exposed to Boyd's theodicy that he presents in those two volumes. They're large volumes, but I think they might be worth picking up and going through. Open theists like to emphasize that what makes God most God is not his supremacy of power, but his supremacy of love. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean every instance of every moment goes the way he would prefer it to go. So, open theists can truly say that something as horrific as the Holocaust was never part of God's plan. But classical theists and process theists alike have their qualms with the open view. There's obviously, first of all, there's obviously discrepancies on what we should see as essential to the biblical narrative. Some might say, hey, pump the brakes here, open theists, those of you like Pinnock who are saying, Well, we're just creating a metaphysics to adapt to the biblical revelation. Aren't you just being selective in what you emphasize as essential to the biblical narrative? How do we weigh and interpret texts that seem to point to God changing His mind or communicating the future in terms of contingent possibilities, in light of other scripture texts like Ephesians one, right? Starting verse three, praise be to God. Boy, that's interesting language. How do we square that, right? This sense that before the creation of the world that we were selected, predestined for adoption to sonship in Jesus Christ. Or famously, there's passages like Romans 9, where some, again, most notably what we might call five-point Calvinists, argue that the deterministic nature of God's sovereignty is not incompatible with human moral responsibility. This view that the deterministic nature of God's sovereignty isn't incompatible with human moral responsibility can sometimes be called compatibilistic free will, and people might point to Romans nine, for example, Romans nine, uh, where we see Paul writing to the church at Rome, saying, "Quote yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad," referring uh, to Jacob and Esau here. In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How can Esau be responsible, right? Uh, sorry, end quote there. <laughs> How can Esau be responsible for his behavior if God had already pre-purposed that The older will serve the younger. Was Esau ever responsible for selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge? Deterministic nature of God's sovereignty, compatible with human moral responsibility, compatibilist, uh, compatibilist free will defenders say, yep, it's responsible. They are responsible. They are compatible. We don't know how, but we can affirm human moral responsibility while still affirming that the nature of reality is, in a sense, determined by God's sovereignty and his divine decree. Another good question that various schools of classical Christian thought have for open theists is this. Does God learn as possibilities become actualities? And when, in time, does God begin to know them? I mean, it's not like there's a singular moment of decision that happens when we're making a decision. As I alluded to earlier in the episode, You know, psychologists at the University of New South Wales using FMRI technology and asking um, participants in this study to make a choice between two images that were presented to them were able to detect patterns of brain activity that revealed what their choice would be up to 11 seconds before they made the selection right so they they see this image they're asked to make a choice they're in you know the fmri scanner and they are able to pick up on brain activity which gave clues and indications to what that the, the study participants would choose up to 11 seconds before they made the decision so when does God know? <laughs> you know, When does God get to see that possibility become an actuality? And is he learning something? What do we think about a God that learns things? This gets at one critique by William Lane Craig, and William Lane Craig, the, you know, noted evangelical philosopher, he's a, defender of the Molinist position that we talked about months ago last year, uh, he has this critique that the God of open theism is, quote, cognitively limited, end quote. And a bit of his argument goes like this, right? So even if God so chose to structure reality with contingent possibilities that don't become actualities until free agents choose them, God's inability to accurately predict the outcomes would be a cognitive limitation. So let's say, for example, and I talked about this with um, Greg Boyd in that bonus episode that we did on Patreon, that uh, short conversation I had with him. I talked with him about this critique, right? This question, one that's perplexed me if God, let's say, let's go with this open view of the future for a moment, right? And let's say that God's structured reality, creation is an ontological layer filled with possibilities that do not become actualities to be known until free agents choose them. There's still the question of whether or not God can predict and with what degree of certainty, God can predict the outcomes of those ontological possibilities. And to help you think about that, we can use an old thought experiment known as Laplace's Demon. Laplace's Demon is a thought experiment proposed by the 19th century mathematician Pierre Simon Laplace, and uh, he argued hypothetically that if there were somehow an intelligence of some kind, an intelligent agent out there that knew the position of every atom in the universe at the present moment, if that intelligence had enough computational power, it could calculate past movements and future trajectories of every single one of those atoms and, in fact, everything in the universe He could predict it perfectly. Quote, for such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain, and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. End quote. This is a perplexing challenge, right? Because if God is unable to predict the outcomes, is that a limitation of God's cognitive ability? Is it a limitation? Of his computational power. Open theists frequently like to use the, the chess master God analogy that God is so brilliant that the way God gets his his will done in the world is not by needing to predetermine every move on the chessboard, but he's able to respond with perfect preparedness to any possible situation that might occur on the chessboard. This is a very interesting um, analogy that open theists use, because if God does have infinite intelligence, and if he doesn't, is he not God? If God has infinite intelligence, and simultaneously this very moment, every atom that exists in the entire universe is held together in him, by him, and through him. If we affirm those things, then how can God not be able to perfectly predict even the outcomes of those things that he would have set as ontological contingent possibilities? If you affirm that he can perfectly and does have perfect predictive abilities of all things, then isn't this functionally the same thing as simple foreknowledge? Simple foreknowledge seems to function just like that, where Arminians in the more Arminian school of thought would say, hey, you know what, the freedom that we experience, the freedom of our will is a genuine freedom, but God knows the outcomes, there's a degree of mystery here, but him knowing it doesn't fate us to those choices, this is just he knows what we would do. How is that different? That's the very thing that open theists say, hey, you know what? That doesn't work because if he has perfect knowledge of it, then you will choose that thing and the possibility isn't possible. You will choose the stapler, Susie, and it wasn't really possible for you to choose the pen. If that's also true, then wouldn't a God who can predict all things with degree, 100% certainty In his predictions, because of his infinite computational power, and because every atom in this very moment is held together in him, by him, and through him, then wouldn't he be able to perfectly predict all outcomes? You can see why this is a conundrum. And it's not just that more classical schools, traditional schools of Christian thought, whether they are Catholic, Reformed, Lutheran, Arminian, have their questions. For the open theists, process theists have their own beefs too. For example, why does this all good and all loving God, who is able to intervene and stop evil, not do so every single time, or at the very least, more often than what he does, if he's able to calm the storms, cast out demons, heal lepers, and raise the dead, but doesn't do it every time, then how is this different from other theodicies in the more classical school of thought, which say that God allows certain kinds of evil or suffering for some purpose in his divine will? And then there's still that nagging, ever-persistent question for even the one that find something like Greg Boyd's warfare worldview to seem pretty close to the cosmology of the early church fathers, if we assume a primordial fall of Satan, which seems to make some kind of logical sense, but actually isn't stated explicitly in the Bible, what was it that tempted the tempter, and why did God choose to allow it? Couldn't there still have been freedom of the will and only the options for – the only options for our wills to choose from would just be like different variations of what's good? Couldn't we have freedom of the will and still just have choices like I can choose between having chocolate cake or chocolate chip cookies for dessert? (laughs) Couldn't we still have freedom of the will and there not be evil? What was it that tempted the tempter? But as we've seen in over 2,000 years of studies so far, each attempt at theodicy has its own strengths and weaknesses. But I'm curious to hear from you. Are the strengths of the open view convincing enough to have you overlook its possible weaknesses? You can let me know in this podcast discussion forum, which happens on Patreon. Uh, Just all you need to do is become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, and you can jump in, chime in with those forum discussions. Along with that, this month we're starting something new for those who are in the Theology 201 level or higher on Patreon. We're also going to start doing a monthly group Zoom call. One of my big goals for this year is to steer conversation, not just in the direction of you and I having dialogue, as much as I love hearing feedback from you and conversing and connecting with you all. I want to be able to network you together with other people across the country who are also exploring these very same interests and subjects. Many of you have expressed a degree maybe of loneliness, even in your own churches, to approaching questions in this way, maybe in an episode like today, you'd feel like, boy, I could never have a class in my church on open theism without someone, you know, rushing in to say even talking about this as heresy. And that doesn't mean that you're promoting the open view. I hope you've even discerned from today's episode that I'm not trying to sell you on one way or the other, but I'm really honestly, with the best that I can, trying to explore the strengths and weaknesses. So maybe doing stuff like that is really tough and you don't have a lot of people in your life to do that with. Well, I'm hoping to network and connect us together in our Deep Talks Patreon community. One way we're going to start doing that is in having a monthly Zoom call together where we can have some discussions about this. So again, you can find out more information about that, about getting involved, supporting this podcast, and some of the perks that come in supporting by going over to my Patreon page. You'll find a link in the description. Of this podcast. And I want to thank those who are supporting at that Theology 201 level or higher. I want to thank people like Micah, Jesse, Sam and Nicole, Ray, John Michael, Michael, Michael Hawk, Taylor, Justin, Paul S., Stephen M., Sarah R., BJ, Sean, Eli. Michael, another Michael, another Michael H., (laughs) Luke H., Sam, Tim K., Paul R., Carolyn. Thank you all for your generous support. Thank you for making this podcast possible. I hope you'll be able to join the Zoom convo. I'll be sending out uh, info about that later this week. Finally, if you found things in today's episode or previous episodes helpful to you, you learned something and you think it might be beneficial for other people to listen to this, obviously you can share it with friends, but one other thing you can do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That is still the number one place people go to to discover and subscribe to podcasts. And your reviews help other people discover the show. It increases the likelihood that the algorithm might recommend it to them. Your review also gives them indications as to, man, what's this show all about? What are people feeling? Uh, do they like it? Not just do they like it, but you know, what is it about this podcast that connects with them? And so. You know, if you felt like doing that, I would certainly appreciate it. Finally, you can reach out to me with your questions, concerns, objections, ideas on Twitter at Paul and or again, via the Patreon page where I respond to every message. I see every comment that comes in over there, and I do my best on Twitter to respond to comments and questions and messages as well. Next week, we got John Verveke, Dr. John Verveke on the program, Behavioral Scientist, University of Toronto. It's going to be a really, really fun discussion. And then following that, we've got a conversation with Greg Boyd and Thomas J. Ord. We're going to talk about theodicy with both of them. Dr. Boyd obviously um, represents the open view, open theism, and Thomas J. Ord is a proponent of what he might call an open and relational theology. It's a variation on process thought. It's really, really unique. These guys have charitable, a good friendship and relationship despite their differences together. And I thought it'd be fun to have a conversation with both of them about their various positions and get them to dialogue around what they see as strengths and weaknesses of each other's views. So check that out in the week that follows. And then eventually, We're going to get to some point of um, me putting together a conclusion to this entire series. So no promises as to when that's going to come, but we are virtually at the end of this series. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.